And uh, kids, in just a second, you'll make your way to your classes. Hold on, because I need your opinion about some things, because as most of you know, I've got terrible news. This is your last week for most of you. Some of you have a reprieve where you have a few more weeks, but for most of you, this is the last week of freedom because you know what happens next Monday. <laughs> That's the parents. The parents are thrilled that school is starting. And when school starts, it's always this funny mixture of things that make us really nervous and afraid and things that make us really excited. So before you go to your class, I want you to help me think about what are the things that make us anxious or nervous or afraid and what are the things that make us excited so who are you tell me some of the things you're nervous about starting school is anybody nervous about anything yeah just say it out loud you know Homework, yes. We're fearful of homework. They pile on the homework. We're there for eight hours a day, and then we have to do more when we get home. So I, what else makes us nervous? New people. Yeah. Uh, if When you're the new person, you're nervous, and then new people make us nervous. We kind of like our group from last year, and then what they do every year, they mix it all up. And so we have new people we have to meet. Why is it, when you're the new person, what makes you nervous? You don't know anyone. Yeah, you don't know any. You don't know if you fit or if you belong. All right, I want to paint a scene for you, and you tell me what's happening. So right here in the school next week, there'll be hundreds and hundreds of kids, and many of them, some of them will be new. And let's imagine there's the kindergartners on the playground, and there's a boy who's just moved from another town. He doesn't know anyone. He's a little scared and anxious. Say he's in kindergarten, and then he sees another little boy that has like a Kylo Ren shirt on. And he's on the playground, and he sees the boy doing something like, whoom, whoom. And then his eyes get real big, and he walks over and uh, asks, can I play with you? And then they start having a lightsaber battle right there. What's just happened? They've made friends. They belong together. They have this common love that they're together. Or it could happen right here in the lunchroom. You could have like a new second grade girl who's anxious about who she's going to sit with at lunch. And then somebody sits right across from her and she looks and she has the new T.Y. Flipsy Flamingo Glitter Bomb backpack. And her eyes just go, oh, I, I have one of those too. And then all of a sudden this bond is forged and they will sit together at lunch every day for the next 12 years. And it's an amazing thing when you find the people with whom you belong. And as children, one of the deepest needs of your heart is finding, where do I belong? And that's actually one of the things that we're going to talk about for the next nine weeks as the adults. Where do we find our place of belonging? So kids, you, where you belong right now, is you belong in your classroom. So head that way. And as they go, those who remain, we're going to start a new series this week looking in the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Matthew chapter 6 and thinking about that deep need and desire. Where do I belong? Who are my people? What does it mean to be friends? 
And that's one of the deep needs, deep desires that every child has, every human has, every adult has. Where, where do I fit? Where do I, where do I belong? And what we're going to look at is the Lord's Prayer. And there's a couple things this morning I want us to see and feel. This is going to be an introduction to the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to kind of enter into the beauty of the prayer, um, the barrier of the prayer, and then the basis of the prayer. But as we begin to think about this, let's just think about the Lord's Prayer and its, its beauty. So just hear it. These are probably familiar words to you. And as I was thinking about it, it's quite possible that this series of words... So think about this, because all major Christian traditions, uh, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant, uh, on a regular basis, and most uh, liturgies have people where they repeat the Lord's Prayer on some type of regular basis, some every single day, some multiple times a day. So if you think of it, there's probably no set of words that have been repeated more by humanity in the history of earth. That's kind of amazing. And so this is a, a powerful uh, collection. It's this beautiful masterpiece that we're going to spend eight or nine weeks kind of breaking down. But look in Matthew chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you yours. So we're going to spend some time looking at this, unpacking this. And on the one hand, this is something, this prayer is something that every person in this room needs desperately to know, to feel, and then to live. You know, we need this personally. I mean, this prayer stands at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. So one of the greatest sermons ever preached is at the very heart of it. You have 116 verses leading up to it, 114 flowing out of it. And even though Matthew didn't write in these verses, he wrote very intentionally and symmetrically and structurally. And so it's at the very the center or the mountaintop. It's at the heart. It's this masterpiece of just profound simplicity. You know, on the one hand, the youngest child can memorize this, you can say it slowly in less than a minute, and yet it's, it, it contains all of the truth that, in essence, the whole Bible can be packed into it. And its effects on you can be utterly transforming. You know, in one sense, this prayer in general, and then this prayer in particular, can be one of the keys to everything that you need to know and be. And so let's think for a minute, because as we establish our rhythms and our routines here yearly at Trinity, one of the things I think would be real helpful for us to do 
is we saw as we looked through Jesus' message to the churches in Revelation that there's three things you need to thrive as a church, as a person. You need a commitment to sound doctrine. There's things you need to know. You need to have continual renewal of the Holy Spirit where you say fresh, where you keep your love fresh and it doesn't become lukewarm. And then you live faithfully in whatever situation he places you in. And one of the things I think would be really helpful is maybe every summer just pausing and having a series on prayer that can help us be refreshed and renewed, keeping our heart engaged and uh, refreshed. So maybe this will be this summer's uh, one. And so you can look at it two ways. Either we're, we're late for this summer or we're about 50 weeks early for next summer when we'll do our uh, series on refreshment. But that's the idea. How can you, um, by prayer, find refreshment, renewal, be encouraged. And there's two great resources that the Bible gives us for renewing ourselves in prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms. Both of those are given to us. And if you think about it, it's only through prayer. A couple things, the reason why you need this is because it's really only through prayer that you understand who you truly are. We are so bent to self-deception that it's only as we come under the light of the word and as we experience real prayer, will we be able to battle the self-delusion that our heart naturally wants to dwell in? So really, it's only in the spirit of real, vital, biblically saturated prayer that you begin to understand who you really are. And it's also only through this that... Um, well, on the sheet or the outline, you know, on your sheet, if you haven't got three, you know who you really are, know who God really is. That's number three. But number two, sandwiched in the between, it's really only through real deep prayer that you can really change. You know, one of the great challenges in life is can people really change? And it's really only prayer is the thing that can drive real, lasting, deep change. One of the things that St. Augustine said about um, who we really are is who you are at the core is determined not by what you think or what you do, but primarily by what you love. What captures your heart? Your, your life really is driven by the things that capture your imagination or what drives you or what delights you. And really the only way to change is you have to change that. And he would say the only way really to change that is you have to change what you worship. Because what you love, in essence, is the thing you worship. And so it's not enough just to change what you think. If you really want to experience real life change, you have to change what you love, your, the habits of your heart. And so prayer is really the only way that you can work truth down into your soul in such a way that it can really change you. And of course, one of the, the fourth thing there is that it's also one of the keys to handling every experience in life. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is the Psalms give you prayers to pray in any experience. There's no experience you can experience in life where there's not a psalm that can help you turn that experience into prayer. And if you're really going to be able to develop God's perspective and strength and stability, you have to learn those prayers. So prayer in general, and in many ways this prayer in particular, is one of the keys to knowing who you are. 
It's one of the keys to knowing who God is. It's one of the keys to experiencing real change. And it's one of the keys to experiencing um, being able to be stable and secure through all of the um, changes that can come in life. So in, in many ways, this is the key to everything you need to be and to do. So high bar set for what this is. And then you think about it, it's also what we need as a church. So you think about just personally, the things you need, uh, also what we need as a church. Here, Jesus, in essence, is giving his family values. He's given his kind of core family mission statement. One of our key lines this year is that we're joining Jesus as he makes all things new. That was a key theme in Revelation. As he who sits on the throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. And in Revelation, it's an invitation. Come, join me. And if you're going to join him as he makes all things new, you got to know what his family's like. What are his family values? And in the Lord's Prayer, he gives you his fa the, the commitments that mark his people. The commitments and then the culture he wants. We were, um, you know, when we were in Louisville, Kentucky, I was a pastor at a small country church called Corn Creek Baptist Church. And uh, so whatever popped into your mind, that was it. This the, up on the, the kind of the hill with cornfields and the building. Uh, it was the oldest, like, established, still going church in Kentucky. And it was just kind of this beautiful, picturesque thing. And um, I don't like surprises. So just personality, don't really like surprises, really don't like getting anywhere late because I don't know what I'm going to experience. Like my oldest daughter and I are very similar. We like to arrive places about an hour early and just be there because we don't want surprises. We want, we want to see things as it, as it unfolds. And uh, so we would always get to Corn Creek. It was about an hour drive for us. And uh, we'd get there really early. Uh, not necessarily had to be there that early, just wanted to ease into the morning. And so one morning we pull up into Corn Creek and we kind of come and uh, one of our deacons, Mr. Bernie Ginn, and he's about an 88 year old soybean farmer. And uh, he's just standing there waiting. And I think, hmm, it's kind of odd. Mr. Bernie's here. And as we're pulling up the drive, like we could almost see, like it wasn't morning mist. We could see like the steam coming off his head. And uh, we park and we get out and he's standing there. He goes, preacher, we got a problem. I think, great. That's, that's not the way you would like to be greeted. And uh, I said, well, oh no, <laughs> what's our problem? And uh, he looks back at the building and just points. Like, well, that's terrible. Um, what are we looking at? Uh, I don't know. And uh, the week before, we had hired some of the kids from the church to uh, cut the grass around our field. And they had cut the grass in such a way where just the grass kind of blew up on the sides of the, the church. And it was just still there. And uh, the problem was that his words were, look at that grass. That don't fly in Ginville. <laughs> so his last name was Gin, and what he was saying is, no, we have certain family values, and leaving grass like that don't fly in Ginville. And uh, so that was our major problem. So fortunately for us, that was a fairly easy problem with a broom and a few five minutes we could overcome. But if you think about every single one of your families that you came from, there were certain things that these are family values. This kind of thing don't fly in 
Benville or what, what, whatever your parents, their, their name was. And one of the things that Cynthia and I do when we do our marriage counseling is we'll have couples, and it's kind of a fun thing to get them thinking, is we'll say, all right, we want you to write down what were your, your families, what were your, the Ten Commandments of your family? And some of them are explicit, and then some of them are implicit. So maybe something you could do at lunch if this won't cause too much of difficulty between husbands and wives. Maybe you could think of what were, or maybe you could do each other. So what were the Ten Commandments of the family you grew up in? I mean, it could be things like, we always finish what we start. And it doesn't matter if we started a dumb thing. We're going to finish it. We always finish what we start. Or it could be things that really aren't said, but everybody knows this is a commandment. Like, don't bother dad when the game's on. Or you can buy whatever you want as long as dad doesn't know. Or you can eat whatever you want as long as mom doesn't know. Or if you want mom's attention, you should text her. You think, all right, what were our family values? What would you say are yours? What's interesting is here in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus lays down, he says, these are mine. These are my family values. Our Father, you're coming into this family, and these are the things we want you to care about and we want you to be about. And it's broken down into two parts that beautifully and simply lay for us what his family values are. These are the core values. Look at number one, two, and three. It's all about your. You're going to have God-centered commitments. It's your, your name, your kingdom, your will. A part of this family, our fundamental commitment is to his name, his kingdom, his will. How, and, and what's packed up in there is how we worship, what we do, what we're about. We worship his name. It's about his name. His kingdom is our work. His will is our desire. It orients us where we're the servants. He's the Lord. Our desire is to do the will of the Lord. And here, well done, good and faithful servant. So the first part is you have this um, God-centered commitments. And this is one of the things we want to be as a church. We want to be a church that's marked by God-centered commitments, where our number one priority is honoring His name and expanding His kingdom and doing His will. That's the center of what we ask, how we can be faithful. But then the second half is this culture, this people that are grace-saturated. The commitments are God-centered, but the culture is grace-saturated. And notice how it shifts from your to our. Give us our bread, our sins, lead us. It's give us, forgive us, lead us. And it's this, this culture that's grace-saturated. See, when we're praying for our bread, we're not just asking God to provide our personal bread. The assumption is that it's our the assumption is that you're going to be a people, the culture is marked by generosity and hospitality. You're not going to eat alone. It's our bread. And if you start inviting people over to your house, you'll start having to pray. I don't know, you're going to have to provide this because it gets really expensive fast. And so it's our bread. And then it's forgive us our sins. It's understanding that part of this culture is a people who are utterly committed to relational reconciliation. Because in any community, you start having people over, there's starting to be tension and frustration. And the culture is to be a people that are marked by relational reconciliation. So one of the things about the culture, about who we should be, is where are the relational brokennesses in our world? And we're about putting those back together again. 
And then it's lead us and deliver us. This is about leading us not into temptation. We want to be a people who persevere, who are faithful. So the culture is one that's hospitable. It's one that's forgiving. And it's one that's just steady, faithful. And you hear this, you think, man, that's, a, that's an amazing family. I would love to be a part of a family like that. So what we see is the Lord's Prayer in one sense is the key for everything we want to be and want to do as a church and as people. So it can provide a map for us that can be so powerful and helpful. But think of just for a minute about it. So what are some of the barriers? If it can do all of these things for us, what are barriers that keep us from being that kind of people? Being God-centered, being grace-saturated, being hospitable and forgiving. Uh, one of the challenges is it's just so familiar. You know, this prayer, as I mentioned, has probably been said more times than any other words in human history. And the, it's so familiar, it can lose its force. But one of the things I hope to convince you these next eight, nine weeks is that the problem is not that we know it too well, it's that we don't know it deep enough. And one of the things we'll see over and over is that Jesus, um, I'm becoming increasingly shaped by the reality as we think about, all right, we're trying to bring a church into being that didn't exist. So how does God bring things into being that don't exist? What does he do? And like a wonderful paradigm is just Genesis chapter one. So think about Genesis chapter one, the seven days of creation, the first three, he kind of creates the structures and the order and the systems. And then days four, five, and six, he then fills them with life. So it's like whenever something needs to be brought into being, you need structure and order, and then you need life, and you need both. And as our church, we're trying to establish systems and structures, but we also need spiritual life to be poured into that. And here in the Lord's Prayer, it's fascinating, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives you both. He gives you structure and order, and he says, pray like this. Here are the six things you pray this. This is your, your paradigm. This is your outline. This is your form. Follow it. But then he also says, ask, seek, knock, call out. And so both those things always together. There's always freedom and there's always form. There's always structure and then there's life. So what we need is we need the structure and then we need it filled with life. And of course, every one of us has our own natural tendency some people are a little more structure people, and they might need to be infused with a little energy and life. Some people are a little more life people, and they might need a little more structure imposed. That's the beauty of the family, that we all have our gifts and we all have our needs, and we only find fullness when we're together. And so here you see both freedom and form in the prayer. Another barrier just with the Lord's Prayer is it's this marvelous, amazing summary of pretty much everything the Bible says about everything in life. And so it's a pretty big subject. So every single phrase could be reduced to, like, you could spend years on every single phrase. Like, what just saying, hallowed be thy name, introduces you to every single thing that the Bible says about the name of the Lord, who he is, and how he's to be worshipped. And that's a huge subject. And it could go on and on with every single phrase. There's such deep biblical teaching anchored into every phrase. And if the truth of it's going to be unleashed in your life, you have to know more and more things. 
So those are some of the barriers. But now let's just wrap up and we think about the basis of the prayer. Because all of it is built on this one foundation that we hear in the words, Our Father. And this is a good illustration because all of the glory of the doctrine of adoption is poured into that phrase, Our Father. You know, J.I. Packer said the, the, all of the, the Bible's um, testimony of what salvation is could be summarized by adoption through propitiation, which he means adopted into God's family through the sacrifice of the Son. So Jesus gives his life so we can be brought into the family. And all of that is just poured into this phrase, Our Father. And I just want us to think about for a moment, because if that phrase, just that one phrase, the reality of what it says became an explosive reality in your heart, where it controlled how you viewed the world and how you viewed yourself and how you lived, I mean, it would change your life. You would never be the same. Like if the deep reality that we cry out to God and we say, Our Father can really land on us, it would give you one of the fruits could be a joy that no circumstance could shake. I mean, you could have a peace and a poise that no disappointment could break when the reality of it lands on your heart. This is the foundation for all the other uh, petitions. All the other prayers are founded on this. And it's in some ways the central glory of the gospel. It's amazing just looking at that sermon the Sermon on the Mount, how often Jesus refers to God as Father. You know, ten times just in the first 18 verses, it's Father, which there's only about 10 or 12 times where God's referred to as Father in the entire Old Testament. And then here in a span of about two paragraphs, he refers to God as Father. And there's a couple key pieces, things that you can meditate and dwell on. What does this mean? It's one of those truths that you can never fully unpack. For example, like the entire book of Galatians is written to help you feel the force of what it means, the beauty and the glory of that you are no longer slaves, but you are sons. And what does it mean to be a son of God? And actually, let's read, or I'll flip over. You can flip over to Galatians 4, and here kind of the culmination in chapter 4. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardianship and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time come, came, God sent forth his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And now you cry, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And that sonship language is really important to maintain. Uh, some modern translations will say we're children. And what they're trying to do is not want to be gender sensitive. But there's certain times where it's really important to maintain the gender distinctions. Because what it's getting at here is that in the Greco-Roman world, um, only sons could inherit. And one of the, the 
remarkable things in chapter 3 is that all of us, there's neither Jew nor Gentile nor male nor female nor slave nor free. In the Roman world, only free males could inherit. And now he's saying we're all actually in the category of sons, meaning we all have in this family, we can receive the inheritance. So, for example, like Julius Caesar, you know, he, his adopted son was Augustus because he didn't have a, a legal heir. Well, actually, this is a story not for another sermon, but Caesar had lots of sons, but none that he wanted to categorize as legal heirs and had lots of daughters, but none of them were allowed to inherit. And so he adopted Augustus to be his legal heir. And one of the things Paul's saying is the power of sonship is that all of us are adopted into the family. And what that means for you is you now have access to the inheritance, And Paul in Romans 8 says the inheritance that we have access to is kept for us safely in heaven. And what it is is this hope of glory. And one of the things, if just that one truth could land on you, it would change how you view your life and how you view the world. That you have this freedom, not as a slave, but as a son. And I wonder how many of us view God subliminally as like our boss that we have to perform for. And as long as we meet our monthly metrics, then he'll be happy and pleased with us. Or when you thought how transforming to to know what the inheritance is and then to feel it and then to live in the light of it. This hope of glory. You know, one of the things that it means is that if you're a Christian and you're a part of this family, one thing that's true for you is that no matter what you've experienced in the past or what you will experience in the future, your best days are always ahead of you. That's the hope of heaven, the hope of glory. Your best days are always ahead. And you know what kind of confidence and encouragement that gives to people who are in a youth-obsessed culture? Our best days are always ahead of us. That's the hope of the inheritance. And so when this starts to land on you, one of the things that it does is it helps other things kind of lose their force. So in some ways, what does it matter what your boss thinks of you as long as you know what your father thinks of you? Or what does it matter if the 43-year-old women who are stuck in a 13-year-old's body and they're slicing up your reputation at work, ultimately, what does that matter? Can they truly harm you? Can they steal your inheritance that's kept for you in heaven, the hope of glory? Or ultimately, what does it matter if your kids don't get the grade you want or make the team you want or you live with these chronic ailments or you have certain dreams that get deferred or dashed or you've put on 10 pounds since you graduated high school? Ultimately, with the hope of glory, what do those things really matter? So in your own heart, in your own life, what are the barriers that's keeping you from experiencing the life-changing power of being able to fully rest in the phrase, our Father? Knowing God as a loving, caring Father. You Maybe you say, look, in light, I, I would love to respond or relate to Him as a loving Father, but I'm, I'm struggling. And once i got to get my act together before Daddy will be pleased with me. And that's not how the gospel works. And if you think about it, that's not really even how good parenting 
works. Maybe you were in a family where your kind of family of origin was performance based and you had to live up to a certain way of being to receive affection. That's, that's not even how good parenting works. You think about, I don't remember who told us this, but we were, when uh, we, Cynthia, I was about to say we were pregnant. Cynthia was pregnant with Maddie and we're doing some type of parenting thing. And it was said that from now on, you will only be as happy as your saddest child. And kind of as a dad, you know, dads, you don't get that, but all the moms understand And one of the things is we're so emotionally connected to our children that our level of happiness will never rise above the lowest one of our children. And you know that even in good parents, there's something that that happens to you when you see one of your children struggling. Your heart goes out to them in a way. So if you say, look, I'm struggling. How can God love me? If you're struggling, you're the one God loves because he loves to help the weak it's not the strong he's looking to show himself strong for. Even in great parents, the, the ones who struggle, it's their heart that goes out to you. Or maybe you have a hard time relating to him as father because there are certain deep disappointments. We think if you were a loving father, this wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have received this. I would have received this. And maybe it's worth thinking about that in not receiving that, he is being a good loving father to you. Maybe he knows it wouldn't be safe to give you the thing your heart desires. You know, the great theologian Garth Brooks taught us that one of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayers. Because you know the things so often we ask for, there's many things that would be the worst thing God could do to give this to you. I got a full living demonstration of this this week. We were having a little staycation and we were taking the the kids out and... uh, one of our children, we connect and we bond on desserts. We love desserts together. And uh, another one we're kind of, is kind of intriguing. We're starting to wonder if there's certain like allergies and different things that are certain. So we're trying to experiment or is there some type of allergen to this? And we were at Disney Springs and I don't know if you've been there, but there's a bakery that they have baked goods that are sugar-free, gluten-free, dairy-free. I don't actually know what real things are there, but they look really nice. And so we went and we were going to experiment to see if this would maybe help and if, you know, one of our kids could eat them and then like them and, and that kind of thing. And it, it was a bad move, I guess, by the parents because bringing, you know, another child into a bakery with all of the temptation and then saying, you can't get anything... It's just cruel. And so as, you know, six-year-olds are wont to do, uh, she was in the bakery, was not allowed to get anything, and just did not handle the news very well. And I love our little Fruits of the Spirit booklet because it's giving us categories. If you don't have one as a parent or not a parent, you can use these things. That's why we made them. But we start, we're, are you, is this self-control? Are we showing self-control right now? Daddy's, <laughs> Daddy's about to lose self-control too if you don't get self-control. 
And so we had to like physically remove ourselves from the store and we had to find a hiding place where nobody could see and we had to have a heart to heart and say, listen, there is 1.2 million people in this square mile radius and not one of them is more committed to you delighting in dessert than your father. I want you to have dessert more than any person in this entire theme park. But you're going to have to trust me that what's in there is not what you want. <laughs> and I'm going to take you to a better place and to give you something you will like better. You have to trust me. And as we started to try to get our composure, I was just reminded of how hard of a lesson that is for any child to learn, that we come and say, our father, and he's utterly committed even more than we are to our own good. And maybe if there's something we don't have, it's because he knows we can't handle it or don't need it, or um, it wouldn't be best for us. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to make these truths explosively real in our life. So as we pause, and I just want as we set up this series, I want you to think for a moment, because the reality is every single one of us is settling for far too little when it comes to prayer and when it comes to what we know about these things. One of my favorite images is from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, and he says, you know, there's he saw this scene where it was like a father and a little boy were kind of walking, and he saw the father just kind of scoop the boy up and kind of give him a little, you know, brr, 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 kind of thing. And then the boy just kind of squealed with delight, and then he sets him down, and they just go on their way. And it struck him in that moment. It says, you know, there are times when the Holy Spirit wants to pour the love of God the Father into our hearts where we feel it like that. You know, he says before the father scooped him up, he wasn't more of a child than he was before. He wasn't more of an heir than he was before. But in that moment, he experienced a love of God where he knew he was in the embrace of his father. I think about Charles Spurgeon who talked about his prayer meetings, the prayer meetings they would have at the, their church in the late 1800s in London. And, and he actually, when they built the new church, it was kind of amazing. They uh, no microphone amplification, so they had to do you know things with the building and the acoustics. So the pulpit was kind of up, elevated, so you could hear. There'd be four or five thousand people uh, sitting around, and he had to speak loud enough so they could could hear. And he built a little prayer room underneath the pulpit, and he called them his warrior widows, who would be in there praying every single time he would be in the pulpit, and he talked about their prayer meetings. He said this, he said, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on some occasions that we've almost had to ask for a stay of delight because we couldn't endure anymore. And that's what real prayer can bring. The Holy Spirit brings the reality of these things, makes them explosively real in our life. And that's what we want. You know, the seeds of everything you need to know and do and be are found here in this prayer. So how do we get into the family? You know, two weeks we're going to be celebrating baptism. I thought it might be uh, nice just kind of walk through the pieces because baptism is the naming ceremony that puts the name of the family on you. And so one of the things everybody who comes, we talk about there's kind of three things to explain in baptism. There's, there's the water, there's going under the water, and then there's in the name. And each of those three things illustrate, and they're, they're living demonstrations 
of how the gospel changes us. You know, the water. The water is, is a picture of the three great things that Jesus came to solve on the cross. Our guilt, our death, and our stains. You know, the water, one is a symbol of life. So in the beginning, you know, the spirit hovered over the waters before he spoke creation into existence. And when Jesus comes again to renew all things, the water is this symbol um, of renewal and refreshment. But water is also a symbol of once life gets turned, it's a symbol of judgment. It's in Genesis 6 and 7 when God judged the world. He poured out the waters of judgment onto the world. And then Jesus has this strange thing where John, um, John and uh, James, their mother, comes to Jesus and they, they ask for something. And the mother wants to know when Jesus comes in his kingdom, can her two boys sit at his right and his left hand? Can they have the place of preeminence? And he actually doesn't answer her prayer. He says, you actually have no idea what you're asking. He says, can they drink the cup I'm about to drink? And can they be baptized with the baptism I'm about to undergo? You think, hmm, that's strange. What kind of baptism is he about to undergo? He's actually on the cross. The cup is a representation of God's wrath. And then on the cross, the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him. And so the symbolism of the water is that the wrath is poured on him on the cross so the life-giving water can be poured out or we can be immersed in in baptism. And then, of course, water is a symbol of cleansing. It represents that we've been cleansed and washed and made new. And then we go under it because it represents going under into the grave and then rising up as we rise up, united with him from Romans 6 and death and burial, rising up to new life. And then the name gets put on us. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, meaning you're now brought into this family. This is your family. It's the family name. And you can see the dynamics when Jesus was baptized. You had the Father speak, you had the Son, uh, the Spirit descend, and then the Son rose up. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So now in Him, all of us as His children get named, and that voice, that word, is over us. So when we have our baptism, and if you're seeking it, the, the question is, have you experienced that? It's a physical representation to point to a spiritual reality that's happened. Have those things happened to you? And if they have, when you see it, remember. One of the beautiful things is we need these things to help us remember. Remember the words of blessing that are spoken over you. If you're a Christian, you're united to him, and you, um, what's true of him, Jesus is true of you. So remember that Jesus was plunged under the waters of judgment so you could be plunged under the waters of life. Remember that the beloved son came so he could open up a way so you could have access and call God your father. And remember that the same spirit that descended on him in baptism now lives in you to make all of these things true in your life. And remember that you were once outside the family of God and that by his grace he has brought you in. So at the deepest level of your heart, you can look around and say, these are my people. This is where I belong. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth. And I pause now to pray for everyone here in this room. We pray that we all, or we all come in with this mixed bag of experiences and situations. And some of us, even the 
um, talk about God as Father brings up uh, painful memories. So we uh, pray that you would comfort and um, heal those. And we know there's some in here who had wonderful fathers, and the talk about fathers brings up um, joyful memories. We pray that you would give them gratitude and thanks. We ask that you would help us to live in the light of all of these realities, and that they would be the deepest truths about who we are, and that they would shape all that we say, all that we do, all that we think, that they would shape how we hope, how we love, how we serve, and what we desire to be and to do. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.